Welcome to Tell Me About It, Episode 4. Here today is Miss Bonnie Rollins. Bonnie is a former judge of the Court of Queen's Bench. She had a long career in the legal industry and is here to answer our questions and share her story and experiences. I also have here Danika Jorgensen, a friend and law student, who will be joining me as a co-host. So let's get things started. Thank you both for being here. I'm excited for today's episode. Thank you for having me, Nina. And thank you for having me as well, Nina. Of course. So let's get started. Bonnie, can you tell us just like a little bit about yourself? All right. Well, I grew up in a very small town in southern Ontario, and I went to a university uh, three times, I think. The first first university I went to was, now it's called Wilfrid Laurier, and I got my first Bachelor of Arts in 18 months. I was a bit of a rush going through university. Wow. <laughs> and then and then after that, I got that BA. And then I went to University of Toronto and got a Bachelor of Education. And then I taught high school for three years in Barrie, Ontario. And then I, while what I was... What subject did you teach? I taught um, English and I taught phys ed. So I had a specialist uh, certificate from University of Toronto in phys ed. So it allowed me to teach English full-time, and then I got to pick the teams I like to coach, because I really wasn't very good at folk dancing and gymnastics, <laughs> or particularly interested in either one. So then after I, while I was teaching, I taught for three years, but while I was teaching, I was spending uh, once a week nights driving to Toronto and taking a master's of English at York University. By the end of my three years, I decided rather than get a Master of English, I would quit teaching and I would become a lawyer. Um, York, very graciously, since I had to stop my master's program, gave me an honors BA in English, which would be the second one that I had. And then I went to Osgoode Law School. And I practiced in Toronto for a year. And then I was married at the time and my husband got a transfer to Calgary. So that's how I got to Calgary in 1978. And when you were first practicing, um, what sorts of cases did you work on? What what field of law was your specialty uh, working in Toronto and then after you moved here to Calgary? Well, when you first practice law and you're in a law firm, they like to give you a variety of areas of law for you to experience. So <clears throat> I would think I sort of dabbled in all of them, but probably predominantly would have been corporate and commercial. Mm-hmm. Um and then there were some estates and wills, uh, but that would be the main one. So what first sparked your interest in law? I, I, think, I think what sparked interest in law was, was probably where my strengths were. Um, I love teaching, but when I started teaching, I was 21 years old. The students in my grade 12 class were 18. So I was much closer in terms of what was going on in the world to my students than I was with the staff. So I... And also I realized that at that point, at 21 years old, as I was watching these grade 12 children, students graduate, that their life was just starting and I couldn't believe that mine was over at 21. (laughs) And I thought thought perhaps maybe I'd set my bar a little low. And I thought, well, and I also couldn't live on a teacher's salary. So I decided to look further afield as to something else I could do. My strengths were not in math, so that sort of took out a lot of the professions. And since I was in English anyway, and law requires an incredible amount of reading, it seemed to be a perfect fit. So 
it just seemed to fall in naturally. And at that point, at the ripe old age of 22, according to the universities at the time, I was classified as a mature student. So when I was in law school my first year, I was sitting next to 18-year-olds, or, you know, in some cases. But most of them had to have a degree at that point. But I was still considered a mature student, which was interesting because they put you in a special category for the LSATs. So my LSATs were fine, but I was in a separate category, so that it was sort of like being a discriminated group. They, they allowed so much, so I was accepted at both the University of Toronto and uh, Osgood, and chose Osgood. So. That's so interesting, because now the average age of law students, I think at the U of C is 26, the 1L average age. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's crazy that at 22 you were a mature student. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, were you always interested in being a judge, or like how did that kind of happen? <clears throat> uh Chief Justice Catherine Fraser, she's the Chief Justice of our Court of Appeal now, she and I were appointed on the same day in 1989. We were the last two judges, I believe, certainly the last two in Alberta, that were appointed, appointed under the old system. And when I say the old system, prior to that date, you didn't apply to become a judge. You literally got asked if you would come to the bench whenever there was an opening. And... It was done through a very um, quiet questioning of a number of lawyers. So the government, the federal government is where the appointment comes from. And they, in their judicial committee, whatever, they had a system set up where they would contact many, many lawyers in the city, in Calgary, and asked about potential appointments. And when my name came up, there was only one other woman on the bench at that time, Carol Conrad. And so they were, there were a number of lawyers who were asked about me. And so they would then, I didn't know this because I didn't apply. I had no interest in becoming a judge. I was quite happy practicing law. Mm-hmm. I was called by, I believe it might have been Peter Clark, who at the time, uh, Joe Clark, his brother, was, I think, Minister of Justice. No, not sure. It wasn't Minister of Justice. Anyway, I got a phone call from him and saying, are you interested in going to the bench? And I said, no, not really. I quite like going to the bench and and going to the bench depending on where you are in the legal world is a drop in income and it was a substantial drop in income so that was another reason I didn't really want to go to the bench and I had no aspirations anyway just isn't something I ever wanted to do and he said well don't worry it's not going to be for about five years anyway and I said well sure sure put my name in the list whatever that's so it was all done rather secretively um how you how you got to the bench in those days um anyway Two weeks later, I got a phone call from the Minister of Justice in Ottawa, Doug Lewis, who said, will you take the appointment? And then it becomes a bit of a shock. So I have to say the first three years on the bench, I wasn't sure it was a good decision. Hmm. But um, after uh, that appointment, the government changed, <clears throat> excuse me, the government changed how they select judges. And now any lawyer can apply to become a judge, anybody. And they set up committees across the country. And the sad part is that all the committees across the country at that time were set up to have two categories upon which you would qualify. One was recommended and highly recommended, meaning every province had its own committee to select, and they were made lay people and Canadian Bar Association and Law Society and various uh, people on the committee. And they would get names of people who'd applied. And they would then do that same sort of vetting that was done in the old system. They would call a bunch of lawyers and ask about this name. Almost the same system. And the lawyers were then ranked, the people who applied, as recommended or highly recommended. The really sad part about it is 
the government was not required to take any judges from the highly recommended. So, oh, no. which is sad. I think it was set up maybe for the public's point of view, but it, was, it wasn't done. It wasn't done and there was no requirement to do it. And then now they just got rid of it. Now it's just anybody applies and everybody's the same and you either make the list or don't. And if you don't, you, I think you have to apply. I don't know if I have this right. I think it's every two years. If you don't get, if you don't get it the first time that you apply within the next little while, it expires and you have to apply again. And, and now it's a very complicated um, application process, like many, many, many pages. And you have to provide written aspects of judgment. So it's quite complicated to become a judge now and quite time consuming. Mm-hmm. So they, they and, and I can't say one system's better than the other. It's just, it's different. Yeah. But I was under the old system. I didn't apply. I wasn't, had no aspirations. Yeah. Right. And so you said for the first three years that you were um, unsure about whether it was a good decision. Um, now looking back at your almost 30 years at the bench, how do you feel about it? Oh, I, I think it was a trade-off. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't regret the decision at all. I, I think it was more of a, situation of adjusting to the environment in the law firm of course you you have your partners and you're very close to your partners and you have a whole social group upon that so when you go to the bench you you lose a lot of that unless you make a huge effort to do that you gain a new one well at the time I was appointed I was the youngest judge in the country and so when I went into the judicial dining room like within days after me being appointed everybody in the dining room was the age of my father (laughs) And there was one woman who it became became a very, very good friend of mine, Justice Carol Conrad. But she was only there for a, about a year, and then she went to the Court of Appeal. So I was alone for a while. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I have never, ever been in a situation where I've had the most incredible men to work with. Unbelievable place to work. These mm-hmm. other judges were like the best place in the world. And that The trade-off was the most incredible experience of my life. They were kind. They were considerate. They were honest. They were, and they would help you with everything. So it was a dream come true in terms of a working environment. That you couldn't be better. Even more importantly, the clerks at the courthouse, they deal with the public every day. And they deal with us every day in the courtroom. They make less than what's on the street by lot. And they are unbelievably patient and kind and incredible to work with. I mean, the working atmosphere is, it's almost nirvana. I mean, these people are, are unbelievable to work with and they continue to be for never changed in 30 years. I mean, this, even with my assistants and I have to say, when you go to a, from a law firm where you have a secretary who knows everything, who, who knows your social context and everything you want and takes charge of your life so you can practice law and you go to the courthouse and you have one I'm not even sure in some cases you would call them legal secretaries. They, you have one, one assistant to five judges. Mm-hmm. So your efficiency drops to zero. Yeah. And you are not used to that. And this person doesn't look after you. They barely can get to the other four. Mm-hmm. And so you, that, that was a huge adjustment. Mm-hmm. But, but as far as making the decision, it also had a huge effect on my family because I had very small children at the time. And when you're working in a law firm, you're leaving at 7 o'clock in the morning and coming home at 7 o'clock at night, and you're living with a live-in nanny, at least all the ones that I knew. And so you, you really had to make time to find your children and watch them grow up. So this changed my whole life. I mean, I, you know, court starts at 10 and it ends at 4.30. It doesn't mean you're walking in at 10, but it means that's when you're there. And you had judgment weeks, which, I mean, lawyers have holidays, but you never take them. So you you had time off. You had... 
you had an incredible amount of of a different time schedule that allowed you to be with your family. So, yeah. and at that time, nobody had any trials in the summer. Yeah. So you didn't work hardly at all in July and August. So it was like being a teacher again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have no regrets on that. So it seems like you had a pretty good experience, but being a woman in an industry so dominated by men, did you ever face any challenges with that? Uh, yes. When I first came to Calgary, I, I interviewed with a number of law firms. And because I had some friends in uh, Toronto who were good friends of lawyers here, I had my sights set on a particular law firm. And that was and I, and I, that wasn't the first law firm that offered me a job, but they did offer me a job within 24 hours of the first offer, and so I went to that law firm, and they had never had a woman before, for very long. The one woman they had, unfortunately, was killed in a car accident. So I was the next new woman, and when I came to uh, Alberta, I came in October. And October is not when you hire students. Now, at that time, I was already, uh, I'd done my articles. I had to redo articles in Alberta, but it was just a couple of exams. And so I was a full-time working lawyer, uh, but a first-year lawyer, like an associate. Mm -hmm. They did not have an office for me. So what their plan was, was to allow me to sit in various offices of the partners as they were away on holidays. So I just went from office to office. And to make it more efficient, they gave me a Safeway shopping cart. (laughs) I had a real live Safeway shopping cart, a shopping cart that it creaked and it was it had Safeway on the level, and I would put my, my pads of paper and my pencils and whatever else I had, and when the partner would come back after holidays, I would load up my little shopping cart, and I would go creaking down the hallway to the next empty office. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, I had a similar experience in my beginning of my legal career in Toronto. When I started my first year in Toronto, it was a law, big law firm, and King and Bay downtown where all the big firms are and uh, I was hired at the same time as one of my colleagues a gentleman in my class and they didn't have any offices for me either so their plan was to put me in the conference room that was adjacent to the lobby of their reception area unfortunately all the walls of this particular conference room were glass And they didn't give me a desk, they gave me a table. And of course, the table faced the reception area. And so I had to spend every day either wearing wearing pants or literally taping my legs together because everybody in the reception area would be able to look through this glass window and see this person sitting at a table, not even a desk, nothing else in the room, and my chair practicing law. And after about three or four weeks, I thought perhaps I should say something. And you don't want to raise any flags when you're a brand new lawyer. And I went into the senior partner and I said, do you think maybe I could have something where I could cover my legs? And he had no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) And I said, well, I have a table here. And he said, oh, my goodness, yes. And he said, oh, by the way, I think there's an office over here. And so there'd been an office and I just fell between the cracks. So that was my first introduction about being a woman in law. 
The second one was the shopping cart in Calgary. So I felt, I thought, and, and eventually I did get an office at that law firm, and I loved that law firm, and I had tremendous mentors there. In fact, my mentor there got me involved heavily in the grain industry mm-hmm. and the grain law. So I would end up, end up becoming a specialist in grain, wheat, mm-hmm. wheat. Yeah. So Alberta Wheat Pool, okay. Alberta Wheat Pool um, was one of the major clients. And so um, that was an area of specialty that was very small, but it involved going to the Grain Academy in Winnipeg for two weeks and learning why Canadian wheat is wanted by everybody in the world. It is because of the gluten content. (laughs) Can you briefly explain for our listeners the different levels of court that we have in Alberta and what types of cases you primarily heard at the Court of Queen's Bench? All right. So there's three courts in Alberta. and I'm going to use somehow, sometimes I'll do an analogy with respect to the United States because people watch a lot of television and they're used to various U.S. Suits. P- procedures. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, suits. Great show. <laughs> Harvey Specter is without question the sharpest dress lawyer I've ever seen in my life. Oh, yes. <laughs> Ethics is another thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, all right, so what I would call... The, 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 when I say the lowest form of court, I mean the, the one that has the least amount of jurisdiction. All right? So you have the provincial court, and the provincial court are, is made up of appointees appointed by the provincial government of Alberta, and they exist right across the country. Every province has their own provincial court. Provincial, and they're called judges, mm-hmm. and everybody above them are not called judges. We're called justices. All right? Mm-hmm. So um, the provincial court has limited jurisdiction to a number of things. So, for example, in contract, I believe their limit is still $25,000. So anything above $25,000, you can't sue somebody in a contract. I think it's $25,000. I think they were thinking of making it fifty. dollars I think it's still twenty five. dollars So they can't, they can't hear anything that involves something more than $25,000. They, they have what is called limited jurisdiction, and that's an example. All right? Um, they... They have no uh, jurisdiction to hear divorce. That is a federal act. We have a federal act, the Divorce Act, for the whole country. So no provincial judge in the country can deal with division of matrimonial property mm-hmm. or spousal or child support under the Divorce Act. Now, the provincial court does have authority to deal with common law situations. And so they can deal with um common law situations, meaning child support, spousal support, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. They can deal with that, and they have a separate family court. The interesting thing about the provincial court is in Alberta, the provincial court has got separate divisions. So you have got the civil division, and all they hear is civil. That's all. Mm -hmm. That's all they hear. They have the family division. They only hear family. Mm -hmm. They have the criminal division. So the criminal division, if you've heard the grand jury system in the United States, which is kind of like, let's see if there's enough here to bring charges. The similar, not exact, but similar to that is the preliminary inquiry. Mm -hmm. They have that here. That's what the provincial judges do. All right. That's their bailiwick. They do that. Mm -hmm. They can hear what's called summary conviction, Mm -hmm. which is similar to misdemeanors in the States. Mm -hmm. They can hear some felonies, but they have, they have no jurisdiction to hear, to deal with juries. Mm -hmm. So and their court that they appeal, you appeal generally to our court, court the Court of Queen's Bench. Okay. All right. So, and and so they they and, and they have a, a lot of what I would uh, city bylaws, um, dog you know neighbors back and forth a lot of that stuff. Yeah. They they handle a lot of that. 
Um, I'm going to ask a question that my constitutional professor, who is also my boss, will be very disappointed to hear me ask. <laughs> um, but so then does the provincial court mostly hear matters, like they have limited jurisdiction, but would they never hear matters that fall under the, the federal um, responsibility in the Constitution Act? Like, is that kind of what um, right. you were talking about with divorce or are those not related at all? <laughs> No, they no. I think most of the federal legislation that you're talking about will provide that it has to go to what's called a superior court. Okay. So I would think I, I cannot imagine anything that would not be in the Court of Queen's Bench, or sometimes constitutionally, you might be in the federal court mm-hmm. or the federal tax court. Yeah. So I, you would not bring anything. I don't think they have, well. They have no jurisdiction. Yeah. So it's a limited jurisdiction court. Yeah. And 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 they run their court completely differently than the other two courts. Mm-hmm. And when I say that. In, in, this is how scheduling, and, and, and I'm not sure how this happens, but it's interesting how when you book a trial in Queen's Bench, you book a five-day trial, and it's five consecutive days. Mm-hmm. You don't do that in provincial court. You, the judge says, I have a day here, and I have a day next week, and I have a day two months from now. And so I, we don't under, I, I've never understood that, but then I've never asked. I'm sure there's some wisdom in that, but you, don't, you often don't get a consecutive trial days. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Queen's Bench... Theoretically, Queen's Bench has unlimited jurisdiction mm-hmm. for everything. So we could hear everything they hear. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that prevents us, mm-hmm. but we don't. We have we do it. So we hear everything. We hear all the serious criminal. We have the juries. We're the only court that can deal with divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, and interesting enough, until a few years ago, Alberta was the last province where Queen's Bench judges sat on the Court of Appeal at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I had many times I sat in the Court of Appeal. This was just something that was in that, that, that a lot of the provinces did. I think all the other provinces eventually phased it out, as did Alberta in the last few years. Yeah. So we, did, we don't do it anymore. Oh, that must have been pretty interesting as well. Did you prefer seeing appeal cases or trials? Oh, trials. Oh. Way better. <laughs> uh, the, the, the interesting part about that is, for me... And it just depends on, on, on where you fit on the judicial spectrum because a lot of judges love that. They love the pure aspect of the legal argument, um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I like the people. Um, I like the efficiency um, because when you're in the Court of Appeal, you're hearing everything by committee pretty much. Well, I, the last time I thought committees aren't near, nearly as efficient as one. So I like to get things done. And the interesting part is I was happy to hear that. And if I was wrong, the Court of Appeal was there to correct me. So it wasn't, it wasn't a place I wanted to be because I really liked, I really liked the, the, the actual public aspect mm-hmm. of that. And the Court of Appeal gets, you know, it's like a funnel. They get very few cases that come forward to do that. Mm-hmm. And we get, you know, a myriad of cases. So mm-hmm. the Queen's Bench is incredibly intellectually stimulating because you you have to switch your hats all the time. I mean, you may do a week of criminal and then you do a week of family and you do a week of civil and then you, this kind of thing. So um, it you never get bored. That's, mm-hmm. You never get bored. Did you ever experience imposter syndrome? And okay. did you ever have any major struggles with mental health during these years? So I guess um, this is my question. And I, I can tell Bonnie that you're a little bit confused. I'm not sure I understand um, what the imposter syndrome is. So, okay. Um, so I personally experience imposter syndrome all the time. Um, and it's just kind of that feeling like, oh, like I'm not smart enough to be a lawyer. or I'm not smart enough to be in law school or 
I still don't understand constitutional law, but somehow I got a B plus. Just kind of that feeling of, you know, how did I get here? Uh, especially when you were so unexpectedly um, kind of moved up to the bench, or did you always feel really confident um, that you had gotten there, um, you know, based on your inte- intellect? And I, I didn't know that's what it's called. Is this, is it been around as a term for a long time? <laughs> I've heard it a lot in my first year at law school. I think it's trending right now. It's very <laughs> popular. <laughs> All right. Well, leave it to the millennials to come with a label. Um, I, I think I, I don't think I've ever met anybody who who fulfills the category of of success doesn't feel exactly that. We just didn't know it. I mean, it's the same thing where you actually study and you're amazed that you actually remembered it. Okay. <laughs> the issue is, is that, uh, yes, I, I think unless you're, unless you have some sort of personality disorder, you're a narcissist or you're a sociopath, I think everybody, you know, feels that, am I going to be found out? I mean, this, because my life seems to be so good and that's what, you, and most people have that, when's the other shoe going to drop? I think maybe not. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say if that's what it is, mm-hmm. then of course, I think, as I say, of course you feel you feel am I really that good to be in this job? I mean, and when you and when you when you are appointed the same day as as Catherine Fraser, the Chief Justice of the Province, and I look at her meteoric rise compared to mine, it is a bit it is a bit humbling. <laughs> Lucky for me, she's a she's one of my best friends, uh, and, and there is a mind that that is to me. No matter where I come from, I doubt that she feels that because she really is scary bright and has got the world in a place that I wish I could think of, but I don't spend three days drafting the most incredible three paragraph letter, right? Mm-hmm. That will be the most incredible three. It, I don't have enough time or care, but she does that. Her, her attention to detail is nothing short of scary. Mm-hmm. And so how have you dealt with those feelings or how do you just put them aside and just focus on, um, continuing your success and continuing your career and doing what, um, you know, what you have to do to just keep going? Like, how do you deal with those feelings of what's going to happen? When's the next shoe going to drop? You don't cut corners. You never cut corners. If you, if you have that feeling of that, perhaps it's not, not that I'm not good enough. It's the fact that, that, that I'm frail, that I can make mistakes. And so I think that's what keeps everybody humble. And so you, and particularly our job, because this job involves people's rights. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you say, well, I can't afford to make a mistake. And say, well, the question is, sometimes the mistake's in the eye of the beholder. Because, unfortunately, everybody in front comes in front of a judge. Somebody's likely to lose. In fact, in, in, almost all, somebody loses. Mm-hmm. And the, the issue is, as long as you feel that you've, you've, you've considered all the evidence, you haven't brought any particular bias to the process, um, that's the best you can do. And because we are paid to do nothing but make decisions and we make hundreds and thousands of them, if you can't let that decision go, this isn't a job for you mm-hmm. because you, you, you can't second guess yourself. So from that point of view, I, I th- you have to bring that to the, to the job. And, and there are many judges who struggle making decisions, which is odd because I think that's, that's really what you're here for. Mm-hmm. So if you agonize over every decision, your stress level is going to be very, very high. It doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes, but the, the, at least the comfort of being in Queen's Bench is that I've got some pretty smart lawyers in front of me. Mm-hmm. And if one of them or both of them think I make a mistake, uh, I can live with that. 
Mm-hmm. I'm just saying because that's what the Court of Appeals for. Mm-hmm. So I get three other judges to look at what I did. And I feel pretty confident about that. Confident that if I made a mistake, then at least it's going to be corrected. Not confident that I won't make one, but mm-hmm. confident that if I've made one that seriously affects someone's rights or, or their, their application, I'm going, to be, I'm, going to be, I'm going to be overturned and that's okay. And I don't think in 27 years I was overturned more than twice. So I'm not that I'm waving a flag flag for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that 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 isn't something as a statistic that I look at and say I'm doing it right. Mm-hmm. I'm just sort of relieved that that's happened because mm-hmm. you don't know when you make the decision, mm-hmm. when you make it, you think it's correct, mm-hmm. but but who knows? When you're making these big decisions, how do you put emotions aside? I don't think you. I don't think you can put emotions aside any more than a doctor operating can put their emotions aside when when somebody dies. I, I think. I think what you have to do is recognize that you have emotions, and you have to make sure that your emotions don't somehow skew the law. And I and I I don't think that's a problem for most judges. But I think what you'd have to admit as most judges is that some plaintiffs will come who are more sympathetic than others. So there might be ranges you know, ranges. I mean, someone, someone who got caught up in a, in a DUI or, or, or you know, a, a situation with alcohol and has just lost his job or his mom just died or, you know, their circumstances are such that we're not absolving you for what you did, but you're a little bit different than the chronic alcoholic who's gone out and drinks without, with impunity. So, so emotions are there, but it's not, a, it's never been a situation where I've said, gee, I feel so badly, I'm going to change the law, I'm going to somehow bend the law for that. I think you just bring it to the table, and it's why you often try not to make decisions quickly. You just mm-hmm. you have to bring all those factors to it. And I think you learn very quickly because at the trial level, which is where the trial level, mm-hmm. there's always emotion. I mean, unless you're dealing with companies fighting over a pipeline, those kinds of things. Those Even kinds those of things. They can get quite emotional. Well, they get, well, they get more. <laughs> they get pretty emotional, but the lawyers aren't emotional, and often their clients aren't emotional. There may be other people who are intervene who is very that. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking when I say not argue about a pipeline the way we're talking about today. I'm arguing about two people who want to argue about a contract and a pipeline because a ring wasn't put in at the right time. We're not talking about putting in a pipeline that's going to affect you know, the way we're talking about pipeline now, I'm mm-hmm. talking about something that is incredibly dull. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, it's pretty hard to get any emotion in there except, you know, relief when it's over. So I, I think from that point of view, but family is all emotion, okay? Estate is all emotion. Yeah. And many, many contracts are all emotion depending on the parties involved. Yeah. So that goes with the, that goes with the territory. Mm-hmm. That being said, throughout the years, have you had any cases that have really stayed with you? Yes, there, there's some, there's some incredibly funny criminal decisions <laughs> that I, I'm not sure I want to go into because I think that you can probably Google these and find these out. Um, uh, I, I did have a, 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 a criminal sexual assault, which is never to be taken lightly, but in this particular case, the, the two young women who were the complainants who alleged there had been a sexual assault gave a description of the sexual assault and as I was sitting on the bench I was drawing on my notebook stick people just to try and figure out how to do it and the description of the woman would have meant that the accused had to have 
arms longer than a gorilla and dragging on the ground. That just wasn't physically possible to have it done. And and so I I had real struggle with that because I thought the, the, and the and, and so it it was in other words it was a ridiculous version of events how this particular sexual assault took place. And uh, I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting trial because I didn't know where it was going to go. As it turned out, the very next day, the Crown stood up and said they were withdrawing the charges because the Crown <clears throat> admitted that the decision or the, the version that was given the day before didn't make sense to the Crown, and therefore they were, which was lucky for me. The other one was almost like the song Cecilia. Um, again, a sexual assault. It was in a, a house where everybody knew everybody. And, and meaning there were men and women. And there, unfortunately, was a guest staying for the weekend or something who was staying in the same bed as his friend, but they weren't, they weren't romantically involved. He was just visiting, and that was the only fit. So they had a big bed, and he was sleeping there. Anyway, the person who lived there ended up sleeping with one of the women and got up for a glass of water just as the guest came in from outside and didn't realize the woman was in the bed. So he got in the bed with her, and... She thought that was guy number one. So she, they start to have relations. Okay. And then, and then when she yelled guy number one's name, guy number two said, that's not me. <laughs> so it was literally the wrong person in the wrong bed within a space of people changing around. Anyway, it, it, I acquitted them. N- nobody knew. It was one of those, everybody it's was very, say, very, very, everybody was very drunk and, oh. and, and everybody was very drunk and didn't know who it was. And it was one of those things where I didn't know who I was sleeping with. And five minutes later, it was somebody new. It was, and, and your law professors always say, well, that would never happen. I said, yes, it actually <laughs> did happen. And it was, yes. And I still speak to the, I mean, I still see the defense counsel every now and then. And we kind of a bit of a laugh and I'm trying <laughs> to gloss over this because I haven't, I haven't told you kind of the interesting parts about how bad it got. But anyway, guy number one came back and was a little bit surprised that the girl he just left for the bathroom was now sleeping with his best friend. And then she thought that was, doesn't really matter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, There were some other ones that stand out, but if I, if I refer to them, I think they're, they're too well known. And so I, I won't get into them, but yes, of course there are, there's, there's a lot that stand out, but most of them, because they're very unusual, they're bizarre. You, it's one of those things that when you hear it in law school, you say to yourself, that could never happen. Uh, Those are the kind that I've had. And I seem to have had a lot of them in 25 years. What's the biggest piece of advice you would give to current law students or people just starting out in the legal profession? Male or female? Female. (laughs) First. (laughs) All right. Well, I I think for women, and I'm only speaking, and I'm thinking of all the professions. I, I, I don't, I can't speak to dentistry and I can't speak to accounting, but I can tell you it's probably one of the most wonderful occupations a woman can have because the number one thing I found very early in life that if you have a job that doesn't stimulate your brain and you're bored life is a very long road so if you have that excitement of continually learning and the interesting thing about law is you'll never learn it all doesn't matter where you go I mean you just you can't live long enough to learn it all and so you can pick little areas that you want or you can you can move within a law firm and if you'd start out I mean I think I started out in oil and gas when I came to Calgary and thought Okay, that because that was what it was, mm-hmm. except that I realized that year ends are always December 31st and you have no Christmases. And I thought, well, that's not going to work for me, so I'll get out of that area of law. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So <laughs> it changed that very quickly. It's that, yeah, interesting, but I'm not, I don't want to have, I want to have my Christmases. Um, it allows you to have everything, meaning you can either stay in a large firm and take maternity leave and maternity leave policies now are wonderful. I think when I had two kids, I think I took six weeks off with my first and four weeks off with my second. And the reason you did that, it's the same reason you don't do it now, all the people do, is you understand as a lawyer, you lose clients. Yeah. You lose clients. So yes, you have a wonderful program, but I'm but most of them one who do it are in boutique firms because they all share the thing here. When you're in a big law firm, you know, your colleagues uh, I'll be, you know, circling like uh, barracudas for your clients. <laughs> and, and no matter how much Calgary's changed in 25 years, um, lawyers uh, have to market. They have to bring clients in. Mm-hmm. And so it is not the kind of job where you're going to have the, the great income and the lovely lifestyle in a large firm if that's where you want to go, if all you do is sit there and grind out the files because people give them to you. You have to bring business in, and so your compensation will eventually be based upon that. And it's a hard row uh, to hoe for women in this town. Now, the good news is that we have a pretty good now after 25 years. There's a lot of you know business women in town to connect and all that, and that that's why it's much better. So it depends on the kind of lifestyle you want. If you want, I call it the jobette, where I only want to work two days a week. Um, okay. Unfortunately, you've taken up a spot in law school, which always bothers me when people take up professions as jobettes. That's just my personal bugbear. Um, um, but you you can. I mean, you can you can have a family. You can arrange your practice. Um, it's very flexible. You never get bored, and you deal with such an incredible group of individuals. I mean, it, it is a small bubble, I call it, because it is lawyers, and lawyers see the world in a different way. But you also have opportunities to, you know, to get involved with your community, get involved with the bar. I mean, it's, a, it's an inc- unbelievably satisfying uh, place to be. Um, and the fact that it's a profession, you're accountable. And, and what you do represents all lawyers. So, you know, you, 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 your behavior, hopefully, when you become a lawyer, will change if it was not lawyer-like before. <laughs> I only say that because, you know, there, there are certain things that you learn very quickly when I became a judge, which was odd because judges are put at a different level of behavior than lawyers. Mm-hmm. But things like, um, we have a code of ethics, you, you are not, we were told, you can't go into a bar. You can go into a restaurant that has a bar, but you shouldn't be going into bars. That's oh, not something. So there were, there were certain things that you, you shouldn't do. And yeah. I didn't know that. Um, but, but there were other things about judges that you didn't do. So, so, so it's just as I say, there's, a, there's a, let, a code of ethics for judges, and there's a code of ethics for lawyers. Mm-hmm. But there's many more lawyers than there are judges. And all the lawyers represent everybody else. So if you make a bad scene um, you know, in a store, um, and they say, well, that's a lawyer, that reflects on all of us. So we as, when I give my speeches to bar admission students, I say, listen, I, I, I ask them to do two things. One of them is I want you to make a difference. Okay, you've got your, you got your shingle and go out and make some money and do it. But I want you to make a difference. You've had the best education in the world. You've had opportunities that often people don't have. So utilize your time as an outside a lawyer making a difference, whether it's in the community, whether it's with children, whether it's with law school, something. Make a difference. And the second thing is, is you got to represent us well. You, you, every lawyer that, li- that gets called to the bar uh, they represent me. 
I'm a lawyer and I, I expect you to act a certain way. I expect you to dress a certain way. And that's something else that's happened. We've had this laxity of appearance in lawyers that they somehow think let's dress it down and um you know millennials you know i don't want to i don't want to i don't want the old the old white guy's code well except that you know what lawyers have never made more money than they do right now and if you think that the, the average person on the street wants their lawyer to look like you know dressed down and it's kind of sloppy and whatever because it makes them feel more comfortable it may until you give them their bill and then they're saying, wait, I no, if I'm going to pay a lawyer this much money, they better look different than me. They better look like they're successful. They better look like they've had this much years. If they look like the guy next door as he's doing his gardening, um, I realize that. But you represent all of us. So it's not just about looks. It's about expectations. And they expect a lot from lawyers. And if we don't deliver and we look sloppy and we, and we don't care about ourselves, not only will they not care, but the people who work for you won't either like your secretaries, your, your legal assistants, whatever. If you come in looking like you just crawled out of bed, right? Why, why would they make an effort? Because they want to have pride in their job. Do they have pride in that you look sloppy? No. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I want you to make a difference and I want you to represent as well. So it, it, there is a lot more than just getting the degree, mm -hmm. particularly now when there's such a change in how the world looks at things as simple as dress. And for women, you know, it's the, and women are the ones that, that, that is more noticeable than men because men only have so many uniforms. You know, they have a suit and they have a sports jacket and they have a, but women, we have a, such a variety of things to wear and whether you want to look like a lawyer or not like a lawyer, the problem is everybody looks at you has an expectation of a lawyer and I can assure you it isn't somebody who just crawled out of bed, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't care about their hair, doesn't care about how they look and they say, well, I got three A's in law school. I'm the gold medalist. And I say, okay, well, that's good. You look like you just you're a step three steps away from being homeless, <laughs> and because I you know because it's it, I'm too lazy. I don't want to make the effort, and that's the thing. So that's my own personal thing about about where you fit because we're the lawyers are the last thing that saves you. We're the last ones. Okay, we're the ones that set this rule of law we keep talking about. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that's what keeps the that's what keeps the people knocking down your doors with guns, and so you understand every time you have a a, a coup or something else, you get rid of two things. You get rid of the judges and you get rid of the lawyers because those are the only, those are the only guys going to save your rights and to keep you safe from any kind of tyranny. Yeah. And so you never, never forget that. Hopefully we never have to do that, mm -hmm. but it's happening all around us. That might've been a long winded answer to that question. <laughs> That's fine. It was a good one though. Yeah. Um, what is the most important thing you've learned throughout your career, both professionally and personally? You should have given me some time to think about that one. <laughs> Take your time. I, I'm it's not. Fine. I'm not the, mo the most important thing I've learned professionally. I have to think about that one. Well, I don't, I'm. Wow, that's right out of the blue. The most important thing. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what the most important thing is professionally. You're asking me what I've learned. Is that what you yes. said? What I've learned. Ask me another question. Let me think about that one. Sure. Um, this one's just kind of, like, you can probably cut this one out, but just for my own curiosity while we have Bonnie here, um, can you tell me a little bit about your, uh, selection for clerks while you were at the bench and what that was like and what you, what you saw as important when you were selecting your clerks? We didn't select anything. 
<laughs> we didn't have anything to do with our clerks. You guys didn't get to select your clerks? <laughs> when you talk about clerks, oh, do you mean the law students? The law students, yeah. Oh, okay. Clerks. Oh, you know what? I was never involved in the hiring process on that. Oh, okay. um, so if you're just talking about the students who come and work for six months, the, mm-hmm. the, okay. Yeah. Um, you know what? Uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what the selection process is. I'm presuming it has to do with their interests and they want to be there and, you know, what they're going to go. And, and I don't know. I don't even know how many applied. I know there was always a committee. Or I was never on that committee. So there's a million committees that the court has for judges. And I was not on that one. Um, so, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I can't answer that one. I can't answer that one. What it, most personally, I keep coming back to the same thing. The most important thing I learned professionally is that Canada has a fabulous judicial system, okay? It's simple. And when we go to seminars in the United States and and I see how far behind the United States is in terms of spousal and child support, for example, all right? How, how each state is so different and how they get legislation that is so foreign to us. The other thing, the United States has such a draconian approach to prison. Um, our tenants in criminal law have an aspect of rehabilitation. So you don't, you, you can hear judges that give someone 400 years or 10 life sentences and those kinds of things. And they're saying that's to get around their parole board. I understand that. Mm-hmm. We have the same situation here where the parole board will trump a sentence, but we don't, we generally craft sentences in Canada with several principles involved, but one of them is rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. So you can't put someone in jail for 500 years because there's no element of rehabilitation. So we don't, we tend to be much more reasonable in our sentencing in Canada than they do in the States. Now, I appreciate a great portion of the population disagrees with that, but it's often because of what they read in the paper. And often what's read in the paper is something that'll sell the paper as opposed to what really happened. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the area of child support, you have, interesting enough, what makes Canada so unique in that is we have one divorce law, one divorce act. We have one criminal code. Now, it may vary in province to province and how you do that. Mm-hmm. But we have, you know, and we have division of, you know, a federal and provincial. So matrimonial property would be, would be uh, provincial and it does vary across the country. But the federal child support guidelines uh, are so simplistic. Now, it's simplistic for someone who isn't self-employed and there's all kinds of things there. But it's a, it's a great starting point. So I, I think professionally, the, the fact that, that Canada has, has, has come up with, with all its foibles relatively efficient systems to disseminate justice is probably professionally, I wouldn't have known that um, if I hadn't been that professionally. The other thing professionally is, is it is, it is such a um, dream to be with a group of people who care about those kinds of things and, 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 and all the time. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, there's, there's downsides and we have family problems and everything else, but there's tremendous comfort in, 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 in sharing whatever concerns you have with someone who is at that level of education, that level of understanding, that level of learning that you have. Um, and from that point of view, professionally and personally, I, I would mix them together. I, I think um, personally, it's been very good for my family in terms of I now look back and say, well, I was a little reticent about taking the, taking the, the job in the first place. In retrospect, of course, it was the best thing for my family. I mean, I saw my children grow up. I mean, I saw my husband. Um, 
So um, it worked out for me. It was the best thing ever. I can't imagine anybody who ever took the job regretted it. I just think at that point, I was so young and there was nobody on the bench, one other woman, that it, it, there were at least a, f- a few women in my law firm at that point, maybe mm-hmm. two or three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the biggest change you've kind of seen in the legal industry during your career? Um, you talked a little bit about, you know, the dressing down, um, but are there any other huge changes you've seen in the way that um, legal professionals carry themselves or the way they behave that's really different from when you first started? Yeah, yes. I, I think every judge would say that at my stage. The, 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 um, the lack of courtesy, the lack of, uh, the, the lack of what I would call um, common kindness, all right? Um, you know, when I was there, you literally could trust a lawyer and shake their hand, right? There were no, lawyers didn't get animated. They didn't get in arguments with their lawyers. They were above that. They let their clients do that. I think the level of civility has has gone very, very downward, and, and everybody knows that. And that has to do with behavior. I think maybe it's social media, that, that they think that bullying is a way to practice law. That it, mm-hmm. it began. And there's no question there are lawyers who, who act that way. Unfortunately, it, the, the entire file becomes more expensive for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no question that, that your clients can be highly emotionally charged, um, mm-hmm. and they may behave very badly. Uh, unfortunately, the level of civility for lawyers has, has has dropped in the sense that they get involved in the fight, and so I think you 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 have you don't have that level anymore. You don't you don't have that. What I dare I say the word gentleman, but I, I say that in a generic sense of women as well. So I think that's changed. Um, the other thing that's changed dramatically is the number of women. Mm-hmm, the number yeah. of women. I mean, we have we have two chief justices. In the province, all right? We have, I think, more women on the Court of Appeal than we have men. Um, the last, so that, so this particular government in the last eight years, or almost eight years, whatever, has done a tremendous job of appointing women across the board. So I think, and women bring a different dynamic to the decision-making process. There's no question. And they bring a different experience. And the women on the bench, I remember my Chief Justice 20 years ago, Ken Moore, saying, I wish I had more women. I mean, we're busy. We want to change things. We want to make differences. So we want to be on committees and we want to, mm-hmm. we want to do this. We want to do that. And there's a tremendous interest. I'm not saying men aren't, mm-hmm. but you, you, you tend to see it often, overtly, often with the women who want to do that. So we have, um, you know, we have, we have different committees, family committees wanting to change legislation. So that has been great. And, and it's no longer, you're not alone anymore. I mean, you, the whole floor is women. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, what do you think about the way the media portrays the legal industry? Do you think it, they glamorize it a lot more than it actually is? Well, I wouldn't have said they glamorize it. <laughs> I mean, Suits is pretty glamorous. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm sorry. Oh, that kind of media. All right. Um, well, the interesting thing is I'm, I'm, always, I'm always astonished at the, the closing arguments that, that lawyers on TV give to the juries in less than three minutes. I wish that I had one that sounded as good as all of those sound. Um, and, and, and if you ever heard the, uh, disc- the judge's instructions to a jury in Canada on self-defense, I'm not sure there's a judge in the country can understand it. It is so complicated. I've done it many times. Makes no sense to me. And and it's the jury will just look at you with glazed over deer in the headlights. It is so complicated. 
compared to the states who've got it, they got it easy. Mm-hmm. You come into my house, I know what I can do. You come into your house in Canada, you, you don't know what to do. You definitely don't want to defend it. We don't have a law that says you can defend your house, which is to me a whole. And so you end up a different aspect. So <laughs> I, I often say to law students, watch suits. If you want to know how to act and look like a lawyer, well, back that up. If you want to look like a lawyer, I said, that's how you look. Okay, that's how you look. And, and the reason that the secretaries look that good is because their boss looks that good. That's the difference, all right? And I can't, and that's a message that we need to get to lawyers now and saying, look, at, the problem is, however media does it, there's no question if you're looking at that, so suits. He walks into a room and commands the room. There's no question, right? Lewis, on the other hand, doesn't, but can get there because of the sound of his voice, all right? Lewis becomes very scary very quickly. Mm-hmm. But when you see him, he's not impressive, but he walks in and can do it different ways. So there's an interesting aspect about lawyers' behavior that has nothing to do with how smart you are. Both of those could be that. So I think other ones. The other one that was always probably the best, the best jury addresses that I've ever seen written on TV was Boston Legal. James Spader's jury, jury addresses were some of the finest writing I've ever heard. Ever. It's that good. But then, of course, the, the, the person writing it was brilliant and had a legal lawyer there. So, I mean, to the extent they, glor- they, they glorify it, I think a lot of it is it makes it understandable. It makes it understandable. Yeah. I think it makes it understandable. And I think clearly if you see the number of police shows, um, legal shows, and medical shows, that's something that the public is, is obviously fascinated with. And the interesting part um, that we get in our court is that in Canada – for example, statistically, uh, I think it's 95% of the trials are heard by judge alone in Canada, and 5% are by jury. Mm-hmm. In the United States, mm-hmm. it's 95% jury and 5% judge. Mm-hmm. It's completely opposite. Well, here's the interesting aspect. Most people don't realize that when you're doing a criminal trial with a jury, and everybody's watched TV, mm-hmm. and we have to often say to them at the beginning, the jury there, and we say, before the trial starts, we need to tell you right now, there's no blue lights, we don't have DNA, we don't have any of that in Canada, we don't have any of those little neat things, where's the blue light, where's the fingerprints, whatever, we don't even have that in Canada, nobody hardly ever uses it, we don't bring up that kind of evidence, we don't bring up hair samples, apparently there's like one place that does it in the United States, we don't do any of that, so when they ask for that kind of evidence, because they've watched CSI, we don't have it. Okay, so you can forget about all that because it's pretty straightforward. Most of it's circumstantial on whatever they've got. We don't have that kind of technology, nor do, nor do most of the criminal cases use it. All right? The other thing that you've all seen on TV is that when someone stands up and say, I object, the judge, the, which is fine. Lawyers object all the time on TV, and they object all the time. In, not all the time, but they, they object in Canada as well. The difference is, in the United States, when a lawyer stands up and objects in a criminal trial, the judge has this wonderful two words, which I wish we could use in Canada, which is overruled or sustained and doesn't say anything, right? Just says, there it is. In Canada, in a trial, whether it's civil or criminal, if a lawyer stands up and objects to the questioning, something like you're leading the witness or it's not relevant or those usual objections, you don't do that in Canada. The lawyer stands up and says, I object. Right at that point, the judge turns to the jury and has them leave the room. 
So they get up and they walk out. When the door's closed, you then say to the lawyer, what's your objection? And it might be, we object because it's not relevant. The other side says, what's your position on that? It's relevant because of so-and-so. And then unfortunately, I can't say overruled or sustained. I love those words. That would be so more efficient. <laughs> I either have to say, I agree or I don't agree or carry on. Then we bring the jury back in. Two minutes later, objection. Out the jury goes. So in Canada, it is the most inefficient process. Mm -hmm. It can take you, a one-week trial can be three weeks, mm -hmm. depending on how the questioning goes, because the jury is up and down. You may not get through more than 15 questions in a whole morning, mm -hmm. because the jury has to keep getting up and going out. So when I say glorify it, <laughs> one, it's way more efficient than in reality. Yeah. But I think it, I think it, it's, it's similar. I mean, there, there, there's lots of aspects of the United States and Canada that are very similar, but procedurally, mm -hmm. they're different. And that's one of the biggest ones. And, and so while there is this, there's a misconception that judges are all elected in the United States and therefore they all have their political agendas. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at it, most of the superior court judges right across the country are all appointed by the governor, mm -hmm. just like we are. They're not, you have the lower court judges that get into their little fracases about you know whatever they're doing and depending on the state there may be more than others but by and large most of them are appointed for life like we are and they mm -hmm. it's not a big deal um so just going on with the jury thing so you said in canada the proportion is closer to five percent for in your personal experience was that the proportion about five percent of jury trials or yeah i i yeah we have we have jury trials probably every week but we don't have a lot I, I, you know, to have two in a week would be odd, mm -hmm. okay, mm -hmm. but we might have, you know, five or six other trials going on. So, yeah, it's, it, it definitely, that, that statistic I think is probably sure. I, I doubt, I doubt there's 10% jury trials in Canada mm -hmm. across the board. I mm -hmm. doubt it. Now, in, in, in different jurisdictions, I mean, you know, they might have more in Toronto, mm -hmm. you know, because of the, just the nature of the volume, mm -hmm. but we don't generally and have you ever had a jury take your instructions and give a decision that you disagreed with? Sure. I think that happens all the time. In fact, one of the most famous cases across the country was Morgenthaler. If you remember, Dr. Morgenthaler had a lot of these abortion clinics. Mm -hmm. Abortion is against the law in Canada. It's against the law. And every time he was charged, he had a jury. And every time that he, when the judge gave instructions, you have to find him guilty, every jury found him not guilty. Even though in the law he was. So the jury just simply said, nope, sorry, mm -hmm. not going to find him guilty. So interesting enough, that is strictly against the law, and, and nobody ever appealed it to the Court of Appeal, which could overturn it. But you don't like – most Court of Appeal, I think, don't want to overturn juries. I mean, juries are the people telling you what they think about it. So you don't. So that's an interesting case. So mm -hmm. uh, for me, not very many. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of only one I can think of. That I think that I thought I would. I, let's put it this way: I'm just surprised. I mean, it's not that I think they're right or wrong. I'm just surprised. I would have gone the other way, but it only happened once. Was it civil or criminal? It was criminal, but it gave you. I'll never forget that one for one reason: when the jury's sequestered, um, and they have a question, what happens is when a jury, after you've given them your instructions, and the jury gets sequestered and they're deciding on the verdict, um, the lawyers, the Crown and the defense counsel, and myself, we have a beeper like you have in the hospital, a little beeper. And, and, the, and if the jury has a question or if the jury's finished, 
that's how you because you can go home because you rather than sit around because sometimes jurors will they'll be there for hours they might they may stand so you don't stay at home you're within five minutes away so you get on with doing other work but you may not be in the courthouse and so you always have a beeper not always but that's one of the ways to do it mm-hmm. anyway if a jury has a question we all have to come back and then we get the question from the jury and they aren't there they stay in the room but we get the question the two lawyers get the question and I get the question we decide what we're going to do with the question if a jury has a question about the evidence or do they want to see something else or would the jury like to hear the transcript of so and so could they have a playback or it could be all kinds of things some things we can answer and some things we can't depending on the question you know if they say you know where is the where is the fingerprint evidence well we don't have any fingerprint evidence so okay <laughs> or they might say something that didn't happen in the trial and say well we don't have any evidence on that so it depends on the question it could be any question out of the blue and some of it we can answer, and some of it we can't. Um, on this particular one, the defense counsel was, he was handsome. I'll just say he was handsome. And he had kind of the the Brad Pitt sort of hair falling over his face kind of thing. And um, the reason I say that is we get questions back, and, and, and we had to come back. We had to put our gowns back on and come back into the courtroom at probably 8 o'clock at night, and it was the first day of deliberating. And it was a very bizarre case. And, and the question came back, how old is the defense counsel? <laughs> oh, man. And I thought, wow, uh, we came back for that. And that's even, and the problem is they fold it. So when the sheriff gets the note, he doesn't get to read it. Had he read it and he was allowed to read it, he would never. But the problem is it's, it's supposed to be a very secretive question. So it goes all the way through the whole thing. And we all come back and dressed up for this. The defense counsel, the defense counsel kind of blushes. And I said, I'm not sure that's an appropriate question. Please tell the jury. And we, okay, fine. And I think they, they came to a verdict that night or they stayed overnight. I'm not sure, but that, yes. <laughs> That probably that one stands out for Hilarious. sure. <laughs> um, so we're gonna wrap things up with some questions that I got from social media through listeners. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them have already been kind of addressed and answered, but I picked three. Um, so the first one is: Do you feel that there is a racial bias discrimination in our legal system? No, I don't. I don't. I I, I think I I think the question is if if. No, I don't think there's a racial bias. I think if you want to make a case for racial bias based upon how many this particular group and this particular group are arrested more, I'd say, well, okay, except that if they're, whoever's arrested is usually doing something, okay? <laughs> it doesn't matter what race they are, all right? Now, it turns out if there's a disproportionate number of people in a particular race, I think, th- I think there's all kinds of people who make that case. But if you're saying, do I think there's some systemic racial aspect? No, I don't. I, I've never seen it. Did you ever regret your career choice? No. Actually, I don't. I don't. And, and there, it's, it's interesting you say that. Now that I've retired from the bench and I now have a business that deals strictly with lawyers, mm-hmm. I now, whatever I thought I would have missed, and that would have had to do with relationships, and I lost touch with spending time with real lawyers, meaning lawyers that aren't judges, I lost all that because judges... It's pretty hard to socialize with lawyers, one, in case they come in front of you, but two, there's always that sort of line between lawyers and judges that that no matter how hard you try, not from our point of view, but I think from lawyers' point of view, sort of, you know, are you keeping an eye? I don't know what that is, but that's gone. So now that I'm back to being not a judge, I'm now rekindling all kinds and and meeting new lawyers that I'm really excited about. So I've now got a whole world out there that I've missed for the last 27 years and so I don't regret a thing no 
You briefly mentioned your business. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of how it all started? It's interesting because judicial dispute resolution is probably was refined in Alberta, and it was actually started by uh, former Chief Justice Ken Moore. And it only came about because when I went to the bench, my expertise before I went to the bench at that time was in wills and estates. And so two of my former sort of colleagues in the profession, not in my firm, who were wills and estates experts, just went to the Chief Justice and said, you know, because I was new, I was now on the bench, and now that was my expertise. And they said, you know, if we could just sit down with Justice Rollins in a conference room, we think we can we can decide this. We just need a judge who understands that area of law really well. So I did it, and and so we sat down, and it ended up taking a couple of weeks, and I had to travel to Vancouver and get this this particular sort of messy estate matter dealt with, and it solved, and we got rid of it, and. So the Chief Justice was very interested in that whole experience. So I did some research, and then I thought, oh, I found a course on uh, mediation at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And so the Chief Justice paid for me to go to Harvard for two weeks. It was probably the most intensive course I've ever taken in my life compared to all the other ones I'd taken at university. Because mm -hmm. um, you did, in two weeks, you did an entire semester. So you had the same semester textbooks that were like two inches thick and you did it all in two weeks. So you were sitting from nine in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. Um, and the people who taught it were a Harvard professor as well as a husband and wife team who had uh, a dispute resolution center in Washington, D.C. Three years later, I went back to Washington, D.C. and had the next course. Anyway, I came back and we, 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 we invented this thing called JDRs, Judicial Dispute Resolution. And so from that, which would have been oh boy, early 90s, um, it just picked up momentum. And we found out that the bar didn't want to go to trial every time, was unpredictable, but if I could just pick a judge, which is the only time you can pick your judge, um, we, I could probably sit down and try and settle my lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And that's how it kind of the, the kernel kind of started. And it just sort of picked up and, and snowballed. And so part of every judicial compliment, like all of us, we have we have in a sitting of six months, we might have a week of what's called civil trials and then a week of, of family trials and then what's called duty, which is short applications that you're not gowned for. Morning and afternoon, you might have that duty um, for all kinds of events. And you might have a whole week of judicial dispute resolution. And it, we got that developed at Queen's Bench more than anywhere else in the country, as a matter of fact, um, where you just go online at QB and you can it's the only time you can pick the judge you want and mm -hmm. see what weeks that judge is sitting mm -hmm. and then you just pick a day so you would a week of judicial dispute resolutions for me would have been uh, Monday Wednesday Friday and so you have Tuesday and Thursday to prepare mm -hmm. so you might do that so that became very very popular and because I'd done it longer than everybody else everybody knew me so I, I was chosen a lot quicker because everybody knew that I was doing it but all the judges are on that schedule and some like it and some don't like it because they that's not from their point of view, I didn't, this is not what I signed up for as a judge, so they don't like it. It's also very stressful because it's very, it's much less stress if you're sitting on a bench quite a ways away from the people you're hearing and having to give them bad news as opposed to sitting at a conference table and they're two feet away from you and you have to give them bad news. So there's a whole different stress level. There's a whole different aspect of dealing with the public that you don't normally have a training as a judge. Um, I liked it. Um, and so I did a lot of it before I, that's what I did as a judge meaning that was one of my weeks. So now when I quit, what happened is 
because we, we had so much more trials coming on, um, the decision was made by the Chief Justice that we would cut back the number of weeks that you give to the public for judicial dispute resolution. Mm-hmm. I personally think that's not a very good use of judicial time because nobody can afford a trial. There's nothing more expensive. Mm-hmm. But that's that's where the impetus came. That was a decision they make. That's the decision I live with. So there were less JDRs for people to access. You couldn't access a judge. And so as have things have happened in the last 15 years, lawyers have now picked up the idea, let's all be mediators. I mean, the whole world wants to mediate things rather than go to court. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's lots and lots of lawyers who are terrific mediators. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we did is a little bit of a hybrid. It's like Medar, but it's sort of like a judge who's been on this side of the bench. So the company that I started with, my colleague, Justice Salavecchio, is exactly that. It is JDRs. Mm-hmm. It's, we call it Dispute Resolution Associates. The interesting thing, if I get back to the judicial ethics question, mm-hmm. apparently, even though when... I'm appointed for life as a justice of the Queen's Court of Queen's Bench. When I leave the bench, I'm not allowed to word I'm not allowed to use the word justice referring to myself. All right? Mm-hmm. So my title as I'm a full-time sitting judge is the Honorable Madam Justice Bonnie Rollins, all right? When I leave the bench, I get the honorable stays but the justice is gone. So my title is the Honorable Bonnie Rollins, okay? That's okay. That's my title now that I'm retired. So th- the problem is that I can't use dispute res- judicial uh, dispute resolution. I can't oh. use the word J and I can't use the word J. So the term now that everybody knows is that I'm doing JDRs. That's what that's what the process is. Mm-hmm. I just can't call it JDRs. So now we call it dispute resolution meeting. We call it a DRM. So right. the company's called Dispute Resolution Associates mm-hmm. and we do exactly what I did as a judge. We just can't call it that. And, and everybody that hires us are only lawyers. It's the same people that would hire me as a judge. There they just aren't enough judges doing it. So mm-hmm. instead of them going to the court, they just go online and they pick myself or my colleague to do exactly the same thing I did before. Does that help? That does yes. help. <laughs> yeah, I think we asked all of our questions. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I think we can both say it was very informative and we learned a lot. And thank you so much for sharing your story and your experiences. Yeah, um, it was definitely a great experience getting to meet you and you're extremely eloquent. Um, (laughs) This is the one thing I noticed during this podcast. Um, And yeah, thank you so much. It's been really, really informative uh, for me, especially. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you. And I wish you well on your podcast career. Thank you so much. All right.